0: Well, good morning. I don't know what, what else I can do after that kind of a worship time. Is that awesome? If you're looking for purpose, your purpose in life, it's simply to return with the breath He gave you, praise and glory, and to be all that He made you to be. Thank you, worship team, for, for that time. I want to welcome you who are streaming as well. We want you to know always that you are part of this worshiping community. Some of you are in the building, and others of you are all around uh, this globe actually watching this morning, and it is a pleasure to uh, have you join us for this great time. And if you're here this morning and you're just not sure what you're going to do with this God that we're worshiping, you are also very welcome to be with us as you continue to seek Him And know that uh, His love for you is great, and that's why we're gathered here. Being a Christian is not one of many labels that a person adds to their life resume of characteristics so that others might have a fuller picture of who they are if you're going to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus, God has actually given you a charge to keep which sets the label of being a Christian far above any other label you might claim. A charge is simply a commission, it is a trust, and this trust is from the Creator of the universe. So this can get serious real quick if you take The call to Christ to come and follow Him and be His disciple. Today let's first of all just be reminded once again of the transaction that occurs that assures us of our standing, our position with God. And then secondly, let's just revisit the classic timeless question that has been asked by humanity over and over again, what must I do to be saved or just what must I do? In his classic book called The Normal Christian Life, Watchman Ni, a Chinese church planner, he wrote these words, we need forgiveness for the sins that we have committed, lest we come under judgment. And they are forgiven, not because God overlooks what we have done, but because He sees the blood of His Son, God judges all of our sin with perfect justice. He sacrifices His own Son, the only possibility there ever was to satisfy His own holy demand for humanity turning our backs on Him, lest we come under judgment." End of quote. I'd like to invite you to stand with me, as is our custom this morning, out of respect for God's Word. And I'm just going to share with you, as we begin, four connected verses that come right out of God's Word. The first is from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Hebrews 10 verse 19, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. That's good news. Another writer said it like this, God would not make us answerable for our sins. Isn't that great? Let's pray together. God, we return the breath you gave with our praise. We lift you high, forever lift you high, high within our hearts, high within our minds. Jesus, you alone, our rock, our cornerstone, amen. Please be seated. A few years ago, right by my home in West Wichita, there was this large electronic sign at the corner of a large church, and these were the words that almost caused me to drive off the road. Listen carefully, pray much and make sacrifices for sinners. For many souls go to hell because there is no one to make sacrifices for them. Pray much and make sacrifices for sinners, for many souls go to hell because there's no one to make sacrifices for them. This is a church. The assurance and the confidence of our faith and our standing with Holy God today is totally determined by the full and the final and the finished work of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. Let me ask you a question, are you today, wherever you're seated in this place or online, are you depending upon the cross of Christ alone for your forgiveness and for your salvation before holy God? This is the most important decision any human being could ever make. I made that decision at the age of 18 with other college students at a weekend campout and it changed my eternity forever. Now, we, we have spent several weeks, if you have been with us, discussing the armor of God. We watched Pastor Bob sit on a bench in a, a slightly scary Mr. Rogers look-alike scene many weeks ago, and, and he took off some very slippery-soled shoes and put on shoes that would make him more sure-footed. I have to ask you, friends, this is off the record. Did you not at some point in that series just envision this six foot ten monument of a man come out one week just for a little bit in armor? Didn't you? (laughs) In fact, Our staff, Pastor Bob, we thought so much of your labor for this series that we wanted to present you with a memento of thanks for how you have labored. If you'll, if you'll take this and maybe on your birthday put it over your mantle or maybe at some point. But you know, all we got was the neighborhood. (laughs) You must have the assurance of your position, your standing with God through the blood of Jesus Christ first and foremost, or you will always view the what must I do as the means, the method of satisfying or adding to the righteous standards of a holy God. And by the way, why why do we say a holy God when there is only one? Why do we do that? Let's just agree on calling Him holy God, for we read in Deuteronomy 4, the Lord is God and beside Him there is no other. If you're not assured of your standing with Holy God through the blood of His Son, you will spend your entire lifetime doing good, striving, laboring, relying on your religious habits and routines and your goodness to do all you can to satisfy a God who does require perfection. And based upon that requirement, you'll never be certain of anything. And the devil's scheme of unbelief and uncertainty for a believer will be his victory because the devil doesn't want you to believe that you have what, in fact, God says you have. You heard that last week. It came from Pastor Bob Betzler. I quote that with his name. And remember also one week ago, you all read from a slide together, I think more than once if I remember being here, you said these words, by grace, through faith, unto good works. Not along with my good work, not because of my good works. And at this point of belief in who God is and and what He desires of us. You learned last week also that if you allow your emotions, your, your feelings to dictate your life over the truth of the Word of God, you will spend your life doubtful or feeling disqualified. And you'll end up watching the battle from the stands or from your recliner or your sofa. Since you are now fully armed, or at least We have a full picture of the extensive protection that God has afforded to us in the Word. We have to be asking ourselves a question, why would God inspire the Apostle Paul to give us a ten-verse, seriously detailed description of the armor from head to toe of that protection? And it's because there is a battle raging. Ephesians 6, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I contend that the deception is so powerful and so diabolical that we, the church at large, has neglected some fundamental imperatives in that battle. As Paul writes, not only is it not against flesh and blood, but against the forces of evil in the heavenly realms, but those forces in the heavenly realms have deceived the church often in its focus in moving forward in mission. We tend to lean further toward a life focus, striving to live more holy lives. In other words, to figure out how we can sin less. If I sin less, God will be happier with me. If I'm more like Jesus, I I will have more peace, I, I will be happier, and life will be better. Except, Jesus did not walk around in His life focused on how to sin less. Now your theological minds are thinking there, that's a little bit of a joke, right? Because it was Jesus. But we have come to believe that our battle with the forces of evil is wrapped around avoiding bad things more than it is encouraging and instructing people to be about the right things and the best things. Pastor Bob often says to us that we want to spend more time as a church proclaiming what we are for than what we are against, because sadly the world defines the church by what it opposes far more than what it stands for and what it endorses. Today I want to share with you two key marching orders that we find in Scripture. I would suggest that if we learn much further, if we lean much further into these two marching orders, the armor that Paul talks about, first of all, would make much more sense, and our misplaced focus would not be nearly as drastic as history has proven it to be. The armored soldier is not equipped just so he or she can sit in the stands and not do bad things. And watch the event. There is a battle for lost souls raging on every day in our lives. Now that you're armored, revisit with me the two key marching orders. The first is this, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? A Pharisee once asked Jesus, recorded in Matthew 22, to which Jesus said in reply, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Now, if you read in a Greek New Testament, it appears as if Jesus does not allow any space between what he just said in Matthew 22 and what he says directly after those words. Here is how it sounds in the original. This is the great and first commandment, love the Lord your God. The second is like to it, thou shalt love the neighbor of thee as thyself. For us today in the English version, it simply reads, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This life that we live as Christians is not a life that is consumed by how I can stay away from sin. But it is a life that becomes consumed by how I can enjoy bringing the most glory and the most delight to my God by loving God and loving my neighbor. That first life, staying away from sin, separates itself from others. Behind high walls and and rigid rules and isolation, Jesus didn't live that way. The second life, loving God and my neighbor, pours itself into the lives of others. Giving more than it takes. Dying to myself so others will live. And that is the life that needs the armor of God. And that is the life that Jesus lived. Now do not make a mistake in thinking that I do not believe it's, it's important uh, that We are to to not live a life that deals with our sinfulness. It matters deeply to us and to God. Be holy for I am holy, but being holy means much more than not doing all the wrong things. Which is why Jesus immediately said, love the neighbor of thee as thyself. You know, it sounds like we are really defining what worship means in total worship means many things. It it goes far beyond what we just shared this morning in giving God our best in music and instrument and lyrics of gratitude and lifting up and magnifying the wonderful life-giving name of Jesus. Actually, maybe Jesus was defining worship in every sense with this profound commandment to love the Lord our God with everything we are and have and all we do and in every aspect of our lives. One, musician that's near to my heart, we'll just just call him St. George, said this, and I quote, worship in its fullest understanding is our soul's expression of love back to our Creator for all that He gives and does and is to us. We worship in how we work, we worship in how we play, how we spend, how we care for others, how we care for ourselves, and on and on. All of this brings delight and glory to the one who created us. That love for God sounds, by Jesus' terms, absolutely unfathomable apart from the love your neighbor as yourself, peace that he says himself is like the first. That's the first marching order for any follower of Christ, and He has well-armored us to do just that. That's the great commandment. And then there is the second key marching order that Jesus gave us, affectionately called the Great Commission, found at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. This is post-cross, post-resurrection, post-numerous appearances by Jesus. It is actually the last instruction given by Jesus before ascending to His Father. If you go over to Acts chapter 1, just before Jesus leaves His disciples, a declaration that when the Holy Spirit comes on them, they will be His witnesses throughout the world. The second marching order is, is what makes or breaks the defeat of the evil one as the church grows not only larger but also deeper, loving God with heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. But the deception of the evil one has slowly crept into the mission through the ages, and the church at large is left often powerless and dysfunctional, even though the organization may survive. What Jesus commissions his followers to do has been substituted out by many good things just not the foremost thing that he commissions us to do. Dallas Willard one time called this not the great commission but the great omission. Matthew 28 verse 18 through 20 Jesus says it like this. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It is interesting in this one marching order that Jesus wants us to know that in this particular charge to make disciples, He will not leave us out there alone. So as you go baptizing or initiating people into the faith and then teaching them toward maturity, I will be with you. The mission of Central Community Church, it's simple. It is to know Christ and to make Him known. Now that you're armored, you have all the protection you need to do all that God expects you to do, and do we ever do that here in this large church family? Confession time, I am buying larger pants than I wore eight months ago when I walked into this building. The reason for that, Central Community Church loves food. They, they love to make food, they love to give food away. Provide opportunities for Sunday attenders and, and, and Wednesday night attenders and families who have special circumstances with surgeries and illnesses and losses of some sort. It's their fault. Their leftovers are killing me, and that's just in the food department, sharing food conversing around the table, it is a good thing. Food warms up relationships, it nurtures the connections that we have with people. It could be said that an element in helping people grow in Christ involves sharing bread at the table. Amen? For that one area within our singular mission of knowing Christ and making Him known, there are dozens of other areas of involvement that are led by well, well well-prepared men and women who have hearts to please God. But hear me on this. I'm quoting Pastor Robert Lewis who said it like this, unless the church rediscovers its primary role as bridge builder, the incarnational power of the gospel will remain hidden, and the credibility to reach a culture of cynical, experiential, and spiritually hungry souls will be lost. People will simply no longer listen to or attend churches that seem incapable of living out what is preached. End of quote. I read a Facebook post recently that said, it's not the number of people who attend a church that matters, it's people who live differently because they came. The church in 2022 is not growing up. Dallas Willard said, and I quote, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It is not the many moral failures, the financial abuses, or the amazing general similarity today between Christians and non-Christians. These are only the effects of the underlying problem. Now that you're armored while our classes and our worship services and our large holiday events and our more personable life groups and support groups and singing groups and men's groups and women's groups and youth groups and mission groups are all of incredible value beneath all of these elements of a highly functioning church is something else that requires the equipment of the armor and the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the protection of God because it is here where the spiritual forces of evil have tricked. And I even believe I would use the word hijacked, the one mission that Jesus left us with and that's to go and make disciples. Now you might be sitting here saying, Dr. Bob, we're we're making disciples all over the place in these activities and groups and events. Well, if that's you, just hang in there for a moment. We Americans love big. We love big. We, We love bigger than we love big. We measure success with size, more numbers, more profits, more hits, more likes, more fans, more shares. We're also in love with something else called fast. The faster that we can prepare it, build it, clean it, sell it, create it, travel to it, replace it or fix it, the better. We love big and we love fast, but many things in life cannot be had by big or fast. The grandest trees, they're big, but they're not fast. The best foods, the best athletes, the deepest souls the greatest leaders, your most treasured friends. Big and fast is not always the solution. There is an intriguing verse in First Thessalonians that maybe drives home this hijacking of the simple mission of Jesus more than any deeper, academic, sophisticated explanation that anyone could conjure up. Having been through seminary on two different levels for two different wall plaques in my office, having read more books than the church really needs attended multiple conferences and workshops over my decades of serving the church, I find in this one verse the principal truth that brings about the miracle of a transformed life that does two things. It loves God with all one's heart, mind, and soul, and loves thy neighbor as thyself. The Apostle Paul here in First Thessalonians is encouraging a church in a little city, thanking them for being true and faithful, becoming imitators of the Lord, turning to God from their former idols and serving the living and true God. A little further on, he writes in that letter, chapter 2, verse 8, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Did you hear that? Sure you did. We shared with you the gospel of God. We told you the truth about Jesus, we, we called you to turn to God, to, to make a choice, to turn away from sin, to accept the Savior, to receive His forgiveness, and to become new creatures in Christ. But with that, as Pastor Aaron discussed about two weeks ago, are we just stalkers of Jesus? Or are we really living like Him? This is great stuff. It's big. It's fast. It's done. It's the gospel, but there's one thing missing. The critical element that the church has, for the most part, dismissed within the one simple mission of Jesus, it's so subtle it is easily missed. The organization called the church can survive without it. Great and meaningful programs, including teaching and music and presentations and trainings, all have their importance. The people will still come, and they will leave happy and pretty much satisfied. Some may even bring a friend from time to time. But a cynical, unbelieving, ungodly, self-worshipping or idol-worshipping world of hungry souls will continue on their way of destruction while the church at large will go on its way. And the subtle myths of authentic transformation of a life, a marriage, a home will be seldom seen because one thing is missing. Go back to the verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Let me read it a little differently. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. My friends, that does not happen with big or fast. disciples are not made by or through great programs, great events, or even great church outreach, all very important things. Transformation of who you are in Christ happens when you allow a few people to come to know you well. It is only in the context of personal relationships where that one question you've always wanted answered can be answered. Stories can be shared. Sin can be confessed. Pain or grief can be heard. It can be felt. Accountability can be invited and encouragement given within one's personal life crisis. Do you remember... That great commission promise from Jesus, go and make disciples, baptize and teach, and the promise, I will be with you to the very end of the age, because this can get tough. But I'll be with you. Now that you're armored, now that you're ready for battle, I invite you to begin using the armor of God that He has given you to be part of an army of lovers who are willing to come alongside of a new Christian or a confused and broken soul who is still searching for God, who desperately needs something next to All the programs and the events and the activities that we can easily fill our lives and our schedules with, leaving us too busy to invest in a life or two. You know, you saw the model of that in another fashion this morning in two little families that are learning the skill of making disciples. Use the programs, use the events, use the services to attract someone with whom you have, number one, seriously prayed for. Number two, you will invest some time into their lives, bringing them, sharing your story of faith with them, learning with them, teaching them from what you know, and being there for them. That's second. Thirdly, it's implicated. Just love them. Just love them. One person at a time over time. Remember, one more verse from John 13 that came from Jesus. He simply said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Now that you're armored. Louis Giglio said it like this. Before you decided to do what to do with God, God already decided what to do with you. He did not give you what your sins deserve, He gave His Son what your sins deserve. He died the death that you and I deserve to die so that we could live the life that we don't deserve to live. There is little greater joy in life than the joy you can have by watching the birth and the growth of a new believer. I invite you to that today. I want to encourage you that if God's speaking to your heart about becoming part of this army of lovers that you just slip out to the starting point before you walk out today and give someone your name and a contact and you can begin to be part of this army of lovers who will care about one person, one at a time. Would you pray with me? Father, we we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the offering of worship that we have given to you. Remind us that we will now leave this building to go worship you in the way we relate to one another, in the way we care for ourselves and, and others. We will worship you tomorrow morning when we get up to go and do whatever you have charged us to do. It's all giving back to you. Give us time. For another person in our lives who desperately needs that personal face-to-face time of growth, challenge, forgiveness, confession, just to be loved, that the world might know that we belong to You. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hear these words, if you stand, of this benediction coming from what Peter wrote, dear friends, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you.